So, the manger to the mount. Let's see where this sermon, which so often is taken out of its place, where it sits in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. But let me go back 10 or 15 years. I was in the BBC studios for a Sunday sequence piece. I think it was the summer and David Lapsley was probably filling in in those summers when there's not much going on around us so they need something to fill in the time. And we were having a discussion about the Ten Commandments. Not sure who all were in the discussion but I had an adversary. Is that the right word? There was a humanist sitting beside me and when it came to her part she rhymed off the Ten Commandments and just said I mean who believes this stuff anymore so archaic so outdated we don't need this so I looked at her a little bit shocked and I said do you like it when you come home from shopping and a burglar has ripped your house in two and taken all your valuables with them would you like it if your husband was cheating once or twice a week with somebody else are you keen that somebody might kill you or that when you go to court somebody might bear false witness against you or that when you're older your children might not come and look after you is that the kind of modern world that you're looking for you're not allowed dead air on the radio but there was dead air. Because who thinks for a minute that these commandments are out of date? However, as we maybe put our shoulders back in the pride that we won that discussion and that these still are relevant things in the society we live in, how would somebody who lived in a country full of churches on a Sunday morning, ever began to think that these are outdated. I suddenly realized that we'd made them into a legalistic, confined, constrained trap for people. That they were just things that you ticked off if you did right or if you did wrong. And we hadn't given them the liberating power of deliverance that the Ten Commandments were. They're not so that we would constrain ourselves with legalism. They are there for the vulnerable to deliver the parents who need someone to look after them, to deliver those who might be in a place where they could be easily murdered, where they might be open to theft and burglars, where they might be in a place that false witness would be an everyday thing. God was saying, let's deliver us from these things that make life wrong. You don't want me to go back to the double yellow lines, but they're not there to spoil your fun. They're there so that driving might be possible. A taxi last night at the corner of Crichton's. 
I wanted to shake my fist at him. I had a phrase in my head. When they say bad things about the church, at least I know that taxi drivers are worse. It would have been written on my t-shirt. But I calmly didn't. Thank you, Lord. The law is not there to constrain or confine or to make legalists. It's there to liberate. So why do I start a series on the Sermon on the Mount, not even yet in the Sermon on the Mount, by going back to the Ten Commandments? Well, that's the journey from the manger to the mount. Matthew, as a gospel writer, is incredibly interested in reaching the Jewish people with the idea and the concept and the truth that the baby in the manger is the Messiah. So as he writes his gospel, that is what he's trying to make clear. Unlike Luke, who seems to have a wider, maybe Gentile audience. Matthew's keen to link this baby in the manger with the Old Testament scriptures that the people have been well-versed in. So think about it for a moment. Think about Moses. You don't want me to go back to the double yellow lines. But they're not there to spoil your fun. They're there so that driving might be possible. A taxi. Last night at the corner of Crichton's. I wanted to shake my fist at him. I had a phrase in my head. When they say bad things about the church, at least I know that taxi drivers are worse. It would have been written on my t-shirt. But I calmly didn't. Thank you, Lord. The law is not there to constrain or confine or to make legalists. It's there to liberate. So why do I start a series on the Sermon on the Mount, not even yet in the Sermon on the Mount, by going back to the Ten Commandments? Well, that's the journey from the manger to the mount. Matthew, as a gospel writer, is incredibly interested in reaching the Jewish people with the idea and the concept and the truth that the baby in the manger is the Messiah. So as he writes his gospel, that is what he's trying to make clear. Unlike Luke, who seems to have a wider, maybe Gentile audience, Matthew's keen to link this baby in the manger with the Old Testament scriptures that the people have been well-versed in. So think about it for a moment. Think about Moses. That great leader that the people that Matthew's writing to would know all about. How was Moses' birth? Oh my goodness. When Moses was born, Pharaoh sent people to kill all the baby Jewish boys. When Jesus was born, Herod sent people. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness 
Jesus, Matthew tells us, spends 40 days in the wilderness. Moses went up a mountain to get the word of God into the presence of God. And really early, chapter 5 in Matthew, Matthew has Jesus going up the mountain to get the manifesto of God. Matthew is clearly taking this baby from the manger and the nativity stories up onto this mountain to get the people realizing that this is the deliverer. This is the prophet. This is the one that the Old Testament said would come. Jonathan mentioned as he was talking about the crib over Christmas, the Beatitudes. And it was in that that I realized we need to unpack this sermon because I've been saying for three years, everything that Jesus taught was in the crib. Everything Jesus taught is in that nativity story. So let's go through the Sermon on the Mount to see the things that were happening in the crib that Jesus wants us to live in our lives. The Messiah, the one who's been talked about, the deliverer has come. Now, the intriguing thing about Moses is when he went up on the mountain into the presence of God, he left the people down below. But something has shifted in the birth of this Messiah. Something has shifted in that shepherds and wise men can enter boldly into the presence of this holy God in a manger. And so Jesus doesn't go up into the presence of God on his own, but he brings the people of God with him. The start of the sermon suggests that he brought his disciples up with him onto the mountain. The end of the sermon suggests that all the people were up there by the time it finished because they were all amazed that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So these two things about Moses, presence of God and deliverance. Let's think about them for a moment. Glenn Stassen, who has a great book out in the Sermon on the Mount, he's a lecturer at Fuller, says the Sermon on the Mount is not, first of all, listen to this carefully. I'm going to, in a moment, say that, well, I'm going to say it in this quote, but listen to the, let, let me know, give the quote and then just think about this for a moment. Remember Ephesians, if you can. Remember the thing we learned early on in Ephesians and listen to this quote about the Sermon on the Mount that we're reading for the next series we do in Fitzroy. The Sermon on the Mount is not, first of all, about what we should do. It is, first of all, about what God is already doing. It is about God's presence, the breakthrough of God's kingdom in Jesus. It's about God's grace, God's loving deliverance from various kinds of bondage and the vicious cycles that we get stuck in and deliverance into community with God and others. Ephesians, if there was one thing we got out of Ephesians was that church is not what we do, it's what God is doing amongst us. And why I believe that that's happening in our presence is 
When I open one of the commentaries I use for the next series of sermons and the guy from a completely different college than Eugene Peterson tells us exactly the same things and exactly the same words, I'm going, this is not about my decision-making on what we might be preaching. There is something mysterious going on in our midst that is beyond Jonathan and myself and the session and the committee and the volunteers and the members and the leaders. Because this is not about what we do. This is about what God is doing in our midst. And so with the Sermon on the Mount. It's not saying to us, oh, now you've got into a relationship with Jesus, you're going to have to try really hard to keep it by doing all these things. No, it's Jesus taking the people into the presence of God and saying, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what I'm doing among you. The kingdom is near. Repent. The verses we read that takes us from the manger to the wilderness to the Sea of Galilee, to the Mount. The presence of God and the deliverance of God. We said, did we not, that this crib was about Emmanuel. God is with us. God coming near. We said, did we not, that the first chapters of Genesis are all about humans breaking apart and making distance from one another, from God, from creation, And then we said that the crib, the nativity story, is God coming to a virgin girl, coming close to her in an angel, birthing a child within her, coming close to Joseph in a dream, coming close to shepherds and wise men in a manger, God building the bridges again, bringing closeness again, God present again. The people who went up that mountain have been waiting for two or three hundred years and no prophet has said anything. They're beginning to get a little depressed spiritually. They're beginning to think God's never going to speak to them again. They're beginning to not believe that God's ever going to do the new things that the prophets talked about, the new things that God was going to do. And suddenly in that distance, in that spiritual loneliness, in that spiritual vacuum, they discovered God in their midst. Matthew starts with God coming close to a little girl and finishes by saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God's presence, alive and doing new things. We have discovered a new heroine, I think it's fair to say, in the Stockman household, Rachel Held Evans. Particularly if you're a woman, read her 365 days of living as a biblical woman. It will have you out on the roof. Because better to live in the roof than be contentious in the home, ladies. It is a humorous, profoundly biblical, ripping apart of how we have treated women for centuries. It's fantastic. But before Christmas, how I got onto this Rachel Held Evans is in her blog. She spoke about America after Sandy Hook after that awful moment when all those children, six and seven years of age, were shot in the school there in Connecticut. And she talked about the religious leaders in America who were saying things like, well, if we keep God out of our society, then God will remove himself. If we keep God and the Lord's Prayer out of our schools, then God will remove himself from the schools, and that's why his judgment comes on these little six and seven-year-olds. She was saying that people say, if you take Christ out of Christmas, then God will remove himself from all that we do. 
That's what people were saying. Rachel said, God can't remove himself. God is right there in the midst of it. Because the story is told about this oppressive Roman empire where the Jews are thinking, oh, where is God? God's not present. God was right in the midst. In the swaddling clothes, on the cross, in the grave, on the throne, no amount of darkness can overcome the light. Rachel Held Evans reminded us in her blog before Christmas. In that manger, God's presence comes to deliver us. And as we begin another year in Fitzroy, we need to believe that this God is in our midst. Yes, we need to declare as we have in the hymns. You would think, as always, that we choose the hymns for the sermon. We should have been so lucky, Chris, this particular time. But this God that changes not, we need to believe the God who changes not is in our midst. But we need to believe that he's the God who wants to change everything in his changelessness. And we have missed that because so often we say, well, God never changes, so nothing should ever change. Jonathan and I are not going to please all of you over the course of the next year in the 20 minutes or 25 minutes of the sermon. Number one, that's not Fitzroy. These 20 or 25 minutes, this is not church. Church is Mornington. Church is going on Tuesday nights over um, to the International Project on the Lisburn Road. Church is in front of the church on a Thursday, or Anna being in Botanic Primary on a Wednesday, or youth club going on, or all the different things that happen. So number one, this don't judge Fitzroy by the 20 minutes of some self-indulgent preacher at the front who says that this plastic thing makes him different, because it doesn't. We're not going to please you all in the style of what we do. But I'll tell you what we're going to do with all our heart and soul. We're going to try and work out in our lives, in our prayer lives, and in our preaching. What does a changeless God mean in a world where he wants to make all things new? We're not going to be 1517 Luther. We're not going to be 1849 revival in Kells. We're not even going to be 2012 in Fitzroy because it's gone. The changeless God is trying to say, here, listen to what I'm doing in 2013. I'm not interested in what happened before. This is not about what we're going to do next year. It's about what God's going to do amongst us. From March 2009, when I got a phone call to think about coming to be the minister in Fitzroy, and I don't usually say things as spiritually almost charismatic as this, we have been swept along in something way outside of ourselves. Way outside of ourselves. Because this is not about Fitzroy. It's about what God is doing in Fitzroy. God is present. God appeared. And he wants to do a new thing. He wants to deliver us. Let me just give you a couple of other quotes here before we finish. 
David Bosch, who wrote an amazing book on transforming mission, wrote this. In the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God ceases to be merely future reality towards which we are on the way. Rather, it has invaded, permeated our earthly historical existence and is in the process of transforming it. It delivers us. I don't know whether you were reading the press just around Christmas there, but one in ten young people can't cope. One in ten young people in the United Kingdom can't cope with the relentlessness of the world that they live in. Nobody to listen to, nobody to make them belong. They just can't deal with life. One in ten young people. That's why we invested in Christopher Hunter. That's why we invest in Anna. Because we want our young people to have somebody to listen to. We want our young people to have a community that they feel they belong to. We want our young people to have something that will help them be delivered from a world where one in ten can't make it. What about Facebook and Twitter from East Belfast in the last few nights? There's helicopters over my head. I hear what I hope is fireworks, but it might be gunfire outside my house. These are friends who are in church this morning who are living in a war zone, literally. We need delivered from it. The lure and the temptation of the easy money that is sent us over a fiscal cliff where people are becoming unemployed, where people are struggling to make ends meet. We need delivered from it. The media, who are Richard Dawkins-esque and laughing at the very idea of God, where we seem to be stupid in the world, we need delivered from it. And so as we come to this Sermon on the Mount, we have born in that crib, we have declared in this sermon, and to be revealed in Fitzroy over 2013, the fact is the presence of God is here amongst us, Emmanuel. He will be with us until the end of time. And he says, if I am, this sermon that you're going to unpack over the next 10 weeks, this is what it's going to be like to live in a place where I'm moving. Are we up for it? G.K. Chesterton says, On first reading you feel that the Sermon on the Mount turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. So let us, in 2013, bring the presence of God, hear the presence of God, see the presence of God, be about the presence of God, turning our world right side side up. Let us pray. Lord, we're aware of a world that we've just shared about where one in ten young people can't cope with the relentlessness of the culture and the society that they try to survive in. We need you to be present among us to deliver us from such a thing. We're aware of the riots on our streets, not only nightly now, but yesterday afternoon as well, Lord. We need delivered from the distances, from the divisions, from the divisions within the divisions, from the ways of the past. We're aware of this economic recession, and we're battling our way through it, and it's difficult for many. We need delivered from the God of money 
And we're aware that in our society, people laugh at the very idea that there might be a God at all. We need delivered from this secularization that takes mystery and transcendence and the love and the peace of God out of the equation. Lord, we need delivered like the children of Israel needed delivered when Moses went up that mountain. We need delivered like the people gathering around Jesus need delivered when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. We need delivered, Lord, and we need to be those that make ourselves available so that you could use us to bring about that deliverance. So as we go into this new year, we pray, Lord, that we would listen intently to what your word teaches. Smash our preconceptions and the status quo around us and usher in your kingdom into our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.